الجزيرة بودكاست A missile has landed in Poland, killing two people. Ukraine accuses Russia, while Moscow denies any involvement. The US and NATO are investigating. So can the risk of a spillover from the war in Ukraine be contained? I'm Laura Kyle, and you're listening to the Inside Story podcast, where we dissect, analyze, and help define major global stories. Well, now let's bring in our guests. And in Belfast, we have Alexander Titov, a lecturer in modern European history at Queen's University Belfast and a specialist on Russia. In Singapore, Samir Puri, a visiting lecturer in war studies at King's College London and author of the book Russia's Road to War with Ukraine. And in Washington, Robert Hunter, a former US ambassador to NATO under President Bill Clinton. A very warm welcome to all of you. Uh, Robert, if I could start with you, this is a day that many predicted would come, a spillover of Russia's war into NATO territory. How have you rated the response? Well, I'm not so sure it really is a spillover of the war. That implies something quite major. Mm. Uh, if it was a Ukrainian missile that uh, went off course, uh, uh, then it's actually a rather minor matter. Uh, the response here has been very interesting. Uh, the president does not want to see escalation. Uh, if at all possible. He wants uh, Russia to back off. Uh, he wants to support Mr. Zelensky and what he's doing in Ukraine. But uh, for once, uh, the administration has kept its message very tightly controlled and has not gotten ahead of the facts. Uh, this is a good thing because more than the actual matter that took place uh, on Polish territory, it's the symbolism it has and the heightened anxiety uh, within various uh, NATO countries, mostly uh, along the frontier with Ukraine, that there might be a wider war. Mm -hmm. So it's the psychological impact which is far more important than the incident itself. Alexander, it does seem that Russia has appreciated the calm response from the US. Might one go so far to say this is gone some way to improving trust between the two sides? No, of course not. Um, the fact that uh, Americans, uh, as, as was said, uh, kind of had a careful message and they uh, released really reasonably soon their own assessments, which of course they see everything what happens and where, where enemies are flying from and so forth in this area, um, uh, suggested that they don't want escalation, but at the same time, the message is also coming very clear that Russia is bearing ultimate responsibility. This is kind of a, a message which being kind of sent out by, by all the um, uh, NATO countries, and uh, they uh, basically, they, they, at this point, point in time at least, they are quite happy the way things are going in a sense that uh, they're happy to level of support for Ukraine and the, how uh, Ukraine is uh, doing against Russia so far. So at the moment, there's no reason for escalation. Uh, but at the same time, this incident shows that uh, you cannot always control uh, escalation in these areas, uh, in this in these circumstances. And of course, uh, the, this is just a reminder of uh, that it is actually can um, spiral out of control quite, quite mm. easily between NATO and Russia, as well as between Russia and Ukraine. Robert, how close do you think it was to spiralling out of control? I don't think at all. Uh, once people had the slightest chance of uh, uh, assessment, uh, most of the other allies don't want to be engaged in this, almost all of them. And the ones that are so-called frontline are, are just fearing for their future. But given the uncertainties, 
various chancelleries within NATO began to become more anxious and it started looking to their own security uh, uh, arrangements. Uh, what this does illustrate, I think, is that NATO, the West, et cetera, has been inadequate in helping Ukraine deal with incoming missiles, cruise missiles, drones, et cetera, which are now obviously designed to capitalize on historically what was called General Winter to try to block out Ukraine during a very, very difficult uh, winter, and also to send a message to West European countries that their own uh, heat and light this uh, winter could be directly or indirectly uh, uh, at risk. So what is not needed is German airplanes. What is needed is high-quality uh, anti-missile defenses, which the United States has uh, and should be supplying. Mm, okay, we'll come back to that point in just a moment. First of all, Samir, although most leaders seem to agree that this was, this missile was a misfire from Ukraine, Ukraine is still not accepting that. Why not? It's about the credibility of their air defence systems. Uh, and this is building on the point that Robert made. Uh, this is one of the most important uh, defensive uh, features of Ukraine sort of standing in the war. And I think it's worth just reminding ourselves that uh, the area around the Polish border has been targeted by the Russians and their long distance uh, missile strikes in the past. One strike in particular uh, came to mind when I was seeing the news of, of this uh, blast in Poland. That was on the 13th of March mm. in a place called Yavorov, which is just to the west of Lviv. It's in Ukraine but not too far from the Polish border. The Russians said that they struck a hub for Western military assistance being sent from NATO, from Poland, into, uh, into Western Ukraine to be dispersed in the war zone. So, you know, obviously this is a very well-protected part of Ukraine, given its importance as a hub. And I think the Ukrainians will be really keen to signal to all around that this is not uh, something that they, can, they, that they can fail to defend. Mm. And Ukraine is saying it wants immediate access to the impact site, that it wants to be involved in the investigation. Just give us an idea, if you, if you can, what that investigation is going to look like and, and what more it's going to tell us. I mean, seeing the, the debris uh, at, the, at the sort of source, obviously there'll be fragmentation uh, if, if it survived the blast. Normally there's some sort of fragmentation that survives the blast. That might uh, allow for a definitive conclusion to be drawn as to you know whose, whose missile it was. Uh, I suppose if the Ukrainians privately want to work out what had happened if it was indeed one of their air defence uh, missiles, they may actually also be wondering what, what mistake was made or whether the, the missile system was triggered by accident. Or, or perhaps what we're not hearing is that there is actually a response to an active Russian uh, strike or a threat of a Russian strike. And I think there's a, a picture to be put, to, put together by the Ukrainians. Mm. Well, you mentioned before that the blame, Alexander, does, does still sit uh, very squarely with Russia. Most leaders still saying this is Russia's responsibility for starting the war in the first place. Do you think that's acceptable in any way to Russia? Well, I think they are <clears throat> gone beyond. I mean, the, when the whole war started, that was already a sign that they don't care about what the West thinks, right? So it's it's a matter of who gets whom on the battleground. So that's we move to that stage. Uh, so there's no kind of trust. There's no. Um, uh, trying to win hearts and minds and so forth on either side. Uh, but um, with the uh, with this, I think uh, the Kremlin will be kind of mildly happy that, you know, the first strike, which actually killed two member, uh, 
Polish citizens was came from Ukraine rather than from Russia. Ukraine's uh, reaction would be kind of quite interesting. As you said, they're still insisting that it was Russian missile. And the secretary of this Security Council, Danilov, just said that they have proof that it was Russia, uh, even though, you know, I think it's pretty clear. I mean, the, the, the Pentagon wouldn't be saying uh, if they had any doubt that it was Ukrainian missiles, if they had any doubt about it. So I think uh, it's, it, Ukraine has to play it really carefully because basically the assumption is let's just blame the Russia and move on from this. Uh, and the fact that Ukraine is not moving on and still insisting on the kind of Russian, um, uh, that it was Russian missile might kind of undermine its um, um, kind of standing in the long term. But uh, so they have to be kind of be careful how they play it. Mm. I mean, Russia also has to be careful, though, doesn't it? We've had uh, at least one rather unhelpful comment from the Kremlin, from the former president, Dmitry Medvedev, who said earlier today that the explosion shows that the West is moving closer to another world war. That's pretty inflammatory. Well, I mean, that's uh, Medvedev has uh, can develop his this renome for being uh, this uh, very vocal hawk on his Telegram channel since the mm. war started. Um, yeah, but I mean, yeah, no, but the, the key to Russia, of course, is that uh, to, to uh, keep out NATO as much as possible from Ukraine, including from supplies of uh, weapons, if it can, and so forth. So, yeah, that rhetoric goes some ways uh, to reminding uh, the, what's at stake. But I think overall, uh, in, in, in that the, the accident happened, that was a spillover from, from the war, so to say, but it was Ukrainian responsible, uh, would, would be kind of beneficial for Russia uh, the way they see it, uh, that it's actually um, kind of Ukraine's fault um, and uh, Ukraine can be trusted so, and so forth. Uh, Robert, there really is no uh, appetite at all from NATO countries, is there, to escalate this war, to, to enter it uh, against Russia? Well, that's absolutely true. Uh, in fact, uh, the facts of the missile itself are almost immaterial. It's what individual countries and their leaders uh, make of it. Mm. There's an old cynical line in American statecraft, uh, no good crisis should go to waste. Hmm. Now, for the Ukrainians, however this happened, this helps them illustrate to the West that uh, unless there is greater help for Ukraine, in particular in its air defenses or its defenses against missiles, uh, this kind of thing can happen and it might just might get out of control. So the Ukrainians have been, I think, very smart from their perspective to emphasize uh, the escalatory uh, possibilities. Incidentally, as for Mr. Medvedev's comments, uh, I put those more or less in the same category of the saber rattling by mm. Mr. Putin over nuclear weapons. Uh, the use of nuclear weapons in this conflict is an absolute absurdity in the sense that it would be a miscalculation of, mm. of the greatest order in world history. So the question is what you have to do now. Uh, stern messages to Moscow overall about trying to bring the war to an end and also stepping up the supply of the high quality uh, anti-missile capacity uh, to Ukraine. So, Samir, should we expect uh, the Ukrainians to to increase their call for more of such weapons system, high quality anti-missile systems? Absolutely. And actually, it's what been one of Zelensky's top talking points mm. is focusing uh, quite specifically on this issue of air, air defense systems, clearly because Ukrainian cities that are nowhere near the ground war, cities like Lviv, Odessa, even Kiev now, are still being struck intermittently by these Russian long-range weapons, a variety of Russian weapons, in fact. 
uh, cruise missiles all the way to uh, these uh, so-called kamikaze drones supplied by the, the Iranians. So there is a, a clear defensive need. I would say that with that comes the obvious hazard that you're packing in into these cities, into these areas, lots of air defense systems, some of which may be from different countries because some may come from the USA, some may come from sort of these old sort of Russian style S-300, S-400 systems. And so there's a huge need as well for the Ukrainians to maintain their situational awareness and make sure that they're not you know, firing these things by accident because yeah. that, that can happen and what goes up must come down. And I think that's one of the the lessons, the obvious lessons from this particular uh, sort of tragedy in Poland. And that's an interesting point, Samir, because uh, Russia did actually say today that Tuesday's strikes on uh, the residential areas of Kyiv were actually Ukraine anti-aircraft missiles, again, misfiring. Do you think there was any truth in that or are they leaping on today's misfire to excuse all the other missile strikes from yesterday? I think, Laura, you're touching on a really critical point, which is the sort of counterclaims and the claims of, uh, you know, misattribution. Russians are, of course, past masters at mis misattributing things on purpose. And it's interesting with this, uh, you know, the, the blast in Poland, there was almost a sense that the Russian foreign minister was trying to portray this as a Ukrainian false flag operation mm. to draw the Poles in, I guess, draw NATO in. Uh, so I think whilst we have to take these things very sceptically in terms of how the Russians frame uh, what's happening, that information war, that messaging conflict is, is a part of the conflict unfolding in parallel to the munitions that are detonating and actually causing loss of life. How uh, how the war is framed by both sides and indeed in the media space is a really important point because this is probably one of the most covered conflicts ever. Technology has moved on, so we see you know blasts from multiple angles, user footage and everything else. Really important aspect, I think. It is important. Alexander, I don't know how closely you're following uh, the state media or the media in Russia. How is this incident being covered there? I think it's kind of they were uh, very quick to um, kind of make uh, the point that it was a Ukrainian missile even before the official statements from NATO and so forth. But uh, and uh, yeah, no, they, they they blame Kiev. I mean, they, they're drawing all the points, you know, the uh, the change in rhetoric from initial assumption that it was Russian missiles triggering Article 4, triggering Article 5, you know, making it really big case, and then saying when it's turned out to be Ukrainian missile, oh, the West says, like, nothing, nothing to see here, let's move on, it's all Russia's fault anyway, even if Ukrainians did it. So for them, of course, it's a, it's a big um, uh, propaganda win, uh, you know, there's no question mm. about it, you know, for internal consumption. I don't think it makes a difference um, internationally because the uh, uh, NATO support for Ukraine will not be affected by uh, incidents like uh, such as this. But domestically, yes, it is a big uh, win for Russia. Mm. Uh, Robert, we mentioned before that the US has announced it's going to open a permanent military base in Poland. That's to boost NATO's defences in those countries that are bordering Ukraine. Is it enough to get that permanent base in Poland to defend from, to deflect an instance like this happening again? Well, no, I don't think it has any direct impact on that at all. Uh, this is the United States showing reinforcement, psychologically as much as anything else, uh, to affected uh, uh, NATO countries. Uh, the base might be relevant in terms of uh, helping to maintain equipment that's being used in Ukraine. But it's really basically symbolic. Mm -hmm. But one has to be very careful on both sides about this. It, it really comes down to another point, which is at what point does one start working on what's called war termination? 
at what point uh, has Ukraine demonstrated uh, that Russia will not prevail? And at what point will Mr. Putin be able to claim that he has validated what he called uh, his elementary objectives in his special military operation, which relates to uh, essentially uh, Russian-speaking parts of, uh, of Ukraine, including uh, Crimea. Uh, the important thing now is for wise people to start thinking about how do you try to bring this to a halt mm -hmm. in ways that will meet the minimal objectives of both sides. And the answer, in, at least in part, can be found in a document that already exists. It's called Minsk II. Uh, Minsk II, explain more. Well, Minsk II said, in effect, uh, was agreed between uh, Russia and Ukraine with the Germans and the French uh, involved, we were not involved, uh, that there should be some form of limited autonomy for the areas in uh, uh, south, south and southeastern uh, Ukraine that are now uh, uh, under uh, uh, combat and under contention, leaving aside Crimea. Neither Ukraine nor Russia followed through on that agreement, but at least there has been discussion of what could look like an outcome. And ultimately, uh, what, what you're going to have to have is uh, the Ukrainians having sovereignty over everything, but that the people in these areas having a chance uh, to live a life in which they can use the Russian language, et cetera, et cetera. But Russian soldiers have to get out of Ukraine. Now, we are already in pre-negotiation negotiations. You can hear what the United States says, what Zelensky said, uh, even some things that are being said from the Russian side. Uh, one of the questions is how much damage will continue to be done in mm -hmm. uh, uh, Ukraine during this winter? How much uh, damage to the uh, grids that supply heat and light, et cetera, uh, before uh, serious negotiations really get on? It's uh, the, These attacks against the grids are inclined in part for Putin to establish a, a more preferential uh, negotiating uh, stance. But we're already in, in pre-negotiations. Okay. Uh, Samir, what's your response to that? Let's look at the big picture for a moment. The end of the war. How does it come about? Is Minsk II the way to go? I mean, it suggests that Ukraine must be open to negotiations. Robert's saying pre-negotiations are already happening. I mean, Ukraine strenuously denies that, says it is not in a place where it is ready to open any kind of talks with the Russians. What is the Ukrainian position here? Very quickly on, on Minsk II. So I worked in the OSCE monitoring mission uh, in support of Minsk II in the first Russian invasion, 2014-15. And you know I had a, a ringside seat to how that unfolded. I was in Ukraine, actually, uh, in East Ukraine, in Donbass, when Debaltseva was, uh, was taken by the separatists just at the same time over in Belarus in Minsk. The agreement was being negotiated. And the Ukrainian negotiators back in February 2015, they had their backs against the walls. They had to really make concessions at the negotiating table because Debaltsa was taken, Mariupol was threatened, yada, 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 so on and so forth. Mm. The, the difference now, and where I depart from Robert slightly, is the Ukrainians feel that they have the wind in their sails militarily. It's a very different war. It's a much bigger war. And my, my sort of conclusion, I, I wrote the book uh, to explore some of the reasons and the ways in which you could actually bring, bring this to an end in the longer term. Sadly, I don't think the Minsk formula is going to work now. Too much blood has been shed. Sadly, I think some form of de facto, if not de jure, partition 
may actually be uh, the outcome. And, and just the final point on this, Laura, the analogy I actually draw is, believe it or not, Cyprus, uh, conflict and a division which I think has escaped many people's active memories. But there are some diplomatic fudges around what is and isn't sovereign territory and how you deal with a failed, in a partially successful invasion okay. that has taken some territory and not the rest of it. We're still, I think, a long way away from this, though. I still think pre-negotiations, perhaps, but the Ukrainians are going to want to explore on the battlefield the fullest extent mm. of their deoccupation, okay. potentially, if I can sort of... Zelensky -like. Alexander, just in the last minute, we have uh, Russia's view on Minsk to whether or not it would accept limited autonomy in areas such as Crimea and Donbass. Is it a way forward? Well, Minsk never included Crimea, so Crimea was always okay. left out from the, the negotiations. Uh, Minsk, do is, it, too, is that because uh, that's why Russia is invaded, because it, it's, it's decided that it was never going to be implemented. And it was never going to be implemented because it was simply unpopular, too unpopular in Ukraine uh, to be implemented. Uh, any president trying to implement it, actually implemented, really implemented, would have been um, facing extremely uh, stiff political resistance uh, in within Ukraine. Uh, yes, so the, the final line, it's just it will and uh, we're not anywhere near that uh, mm. of uh, negotiations but the, the question is where the final line the front line will be when the negotiations actually start probably in a year so maybe a couple of years time okay. uh, I think that's what always always about you know uh, facts on the ground where the the, the dividing line will will, will be and okay. after that, and uh, that uh, solution will be found. that does have to be our final line many thanks indeed for joining us Alexander Titov Samirpur and Robert Hunter. That's it for the Inside Story podcast. This episode was produced by Calvin Ng, Nihad Alabadi, Gabriella Faber and Jimmy Gettahan. Studio sound was by Ellie Elhani. The programme was edited by Alexander Otisevich, Ling Nguyen and Joda Frias. Be sure to subscribe to the Inside Story podcast to catch every episode. Thank you for listening and we'll be back again on Thursday. Thursday.